The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.deliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Hello, welcome to conversations, usually about old books that happen to be fiction. In this case, we're gonna actually talk about a book that is not fiction. I have chosen Yvonne Illich, and really I should say the book chose me because it was Miles Wernst who we're having on today who recommended the book. And recently I had just read Yvonne Illich's um, book on Hugh of St. Victor. Oh yeah, that's one I haven't actually read. Paradigm but, shift, you have yeah. to read, I mean, Really, you read a book by Ivan Illich and you're like, I have to read every book by Ivan Illich. And so I read Hugh of St. Victor, his introduction, it's called In the Vineyard of the Text. And it was just, again, paradigm shifting. I started mm -hmm. thinking, writing different in general. And that's, that's the reason I wanted to jump on this conversation with you, even though this isn't a fiction book, because it's a nonfiction fiction book that does the same thing as some mm -hmm. of the books I'm talking about. Like it reconfigures your imagination which is the goal of these conversations is like, in what way are some of these old books shaping how we imagine the world? So right. in particular, Illich's book on de-schooling society, you recommended on Inglewood Review of Books. And even though you and I don't keep in touch, we go way back to Baylor, where we shared that itty bitty tiny office and the cubicle. Right. And the yes. Only yes. one of us could get out of the desk at a time because it was like the L-shaped Yes, the L-shaped where both of us had our monitors, but our chairs backed up to one another and there was no way to to <laughs> navigate that little corner. Yeah, at Baylor University Press. So we haven't kept in touch, but every time that I can, I follow your work. I'm always reading what you're writing. You had been writing kind of these blog posts on this. You've talked on Inglewood Review of Books about this book. And you thought, okay, you're the best person to talk about this with. So if you wouldn't mind, would you introduce your, yourself to people? I don't like doing that sure. because I don't like listing out awards and books and things of other people, but please do introduce yourself. And then, and then let's talk about how you found this book. Yeah. Uh, so I am an associate professor of theology at Abilene Christian university. I teach in the graduate school of theology. I also direct the Baptist study center. That's um, the kind of the inaugural director there. I've been here since 2020. Uh, so my interests kind of run far and wide. The main things that I work on are, uh, work a lot on Christian ethics and I work a lot on uh, ecclesiology. And so that tends to be kind of the intersection of things that I find to be really interesting. Kind of what does it mean for Christian witness to work itself out in the world in ways uh, that kind of amplify a Christian moral witness? I yeah. think that's kind of the, if you, if you look at the stuff that I've written, it kind of ranges pretty broadly, but that's kind of the thread that for me holds it all, holds it all together. Well, you had two books come out this last year, right? The same I did. Time? Yeah. So uh, the first one, uh, speaking of ecclesiology, is this one uh, from isolation to community. You have like the way to keep it from reversing, but you know. <laughs> uh, so it's with Baker 
from the spring from isolation to community re renewed vision for christian life together it's basically an account of how uh bonhoeffer helps diagnose the the social fragmentation that is occurring within congregational life and how a lot of what we do within congregational life actually amplifies that fragmentation rather than mitigate it uh and so it does then kind of a kind of uh it, it works in tandem with his book Life Together and kind of piecing that together with a lot of his other texts to offer an account of what does like what does Christian community entail and what does it look like if you begin to think of the Christian life as communal all the way down. Mm -hmm. um, we get into issues of uh, social witness, we get into issues of kind of liturgy and uh recon like uh practices of reconciliation and confession and a whole lot of things so it was one that i wrote i began writing it uh pretty quickly after covid because i started thinking pretty i was starting to like turn over this question of why is it that so much of our church practice was able to be put online mm -hmm. almost without thinking every church became an expert in facebook live or zoom and it was like all of the functions that normally would happen face to face were happening now digitally without really missing a step. And so I began to ponder, like, what is it like? What is it saying about our practice that all of these things can be done without us being physically proximate to one another? And it doesn't really feel like it affects, you know, or at least initially nobody was talking about it, like as if it was, mm -hmm. yes, this huge loss. So that was kind of the impetus for the book. And just coming to terms with, yeah, I don't think that practically speaking, we really think that we need one another, mm -hmm. or at least we don't need one another's bodily presence yeah. for the Christian life to be coherent. So that's kind of where the book began. Yeah, I think that your argument in that book is very much aligned with what we're talking about with Illich, because the things that happened on Zoom for church were happening during the week for school. Right. That's right. And I was having kind of the same, I was having the same problem you know, really just recognizing the problem, not necessarily diagnosing it or even figuring out how to cure it, but just seeing mm -hmm. why isn't so much of school is being translated onto the online format and people are acting like there isn't a loss. Right. And there really is. I mean, every mom who was at home with their kids, I don't know how many dads were too, but for me, like I took over the school portion for our children. Mm -hmm. There was a loss for them mm -hmm. to their peers and for them to not have their teachers. So, so, and I, and I don't think it just needs to be these contemporary books that talk about that problem. I think the underlying sim symptoms and the roots of the problem go way back, which is why you can read a 1971 book and be it able feels to very contemporary. And a lot of the things that he's, I think the thing that was shocking for me. So I started reading Illich, uh, a couple of years ago, I got, uh, introduced to him through a guy named Michael Sacasis. He writes this amazing, uh, amazing newsletter. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll try to, maybe we can put it in like the notes uh, to introduce people to his work. So Michael has been writing about Illich for a while and is working on like a book on Illich. And so I just kind of been, been following his work and just kind of like intrigued by his vision. And so this is around the time that our kids were getting ready to go to school. And so this is around, uh, this is probably like spring of 2020 COVID is beginning to like come into full swing. Uh, 
our kids were not yet in our oldest had not yet started kindergarten, but it was kind of like that transitional time. We were having to make decisions about what, like what that was going to look like. And just the prospect of kind of sending him to kindergarten in the midst of COVID and that being kind of his first formal schooling just Mm -hmm. didn't, it seemed kind of dystopian to begin with. Um, It didn't help that I was also reading Illich and particularly this book. And that was, this book I think was what really tipped the scale for me in terms of wanting to not just explore, but maybe commit more fully to homeschooling. So we homeschool, uh, we do like a hybrid homeschool situation. Prior to reading Illich, prior to COVID, I don't think that we had any inclination at all mm. to do homeschool, but just kind of the the confluence of things really, uh, it flipped the switch for us and it's been great so yeah. far. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of effort. Uh, for the last two years, uh, my wife and I would swap off days at home doing homeschooling and work. Um, so it's not as it's not bloodless by any means. It takes a lot of work, but I do think that for us it's been incredibly rewarding, and maybe for, and rewarding because I think it it it's allowed me to kind of see things. Uh, Illich has helped me to see kind of what the goods of education I think should be, and uh, maybe ways in which homeschooling provides maybe one way to kind of get at those things. Yeah. And the, I mean, the title of the book is, I I would not, I don't want to say a trigger. Uh, What word would I use? Um, Hot take, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I mean, the title is de-schooling society. So Mm -hmm. he really is talking about kind of unpending the entire institution. How get rid of the idea of institutionalized school which in america feels i mean it is like one of the most important democratic it, rights. it feels like deeply unpatriotic yes. and it feels like deeply uh just antiquated to even think about like schooling in a way that's not in an in institutional form the way that um the way that i think we're we're used to kind of the default Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when we just when we decided to do it, I think one of the things that we had to come to terms with was that we, you know, we moved to, to the neighborhood we did because the schools are good. Uh, uh, had always intended to put our kids into public school, have lots of friends that are that are public school teachers. Um, but just kind of having to, but I think one of the things that Illich wants us to contend with is whether or not education and institutional schooling are always meant to track together that Mm -hmm. sometimes they do but i think that there's ways in which for illich these things can um can go south yeah um yeah i love this book for a for a few reasons one is kind of what it does what the way it makes us think about the purpose and nature of education but more broadly, I love the way in which it it uses education as a it, like the critiques that it makes of formalized education. It allows us to see the ways in which the institutionalized educational ethos has worked its way into the way that we think about institutions more broadly, mm-hmm. at least in in North America. Um, so the reference to de-schooling society, the reason that he didn't write a book probably just like exclusively about like de-schooling education, mm-hmm. but it's de-schooling society is because he sees that 
what what happens within the educational process is symptomatic of a much broader way that we think about the role of uh, institutions, the way that we think about knowledge acquisition, the way that we think about uh, what counts as credible knowledge about a subject. Mm -hmm. um, and so it gets real dicey, particularly reading Illich now, because there's so much reactionary, uh, there's so much reactionary stuff out there that wants to, I think, maybe go even further than Illich wants to go. Um, and so it's real easy to kind of, to, and we'll get into some of the arguments that Illich makes, but it's real easy, I think, to to read Illich and to read it through maybe some of the more conspiratorial stuff that's out there on public education, that it's, um, I don't know, that it's public education is being aligned with wokeness or that public education is being aligned with um, like some nefarious plot to you know align our children with pedophiles or something you know like the really crazy stuff mm -hmm. um that being said illich's arguments around the way in which public education is structured i think are the are are the ones that really need to be taken seriously yeah so. well, and i think one of the things that strikes me about the book is that you were talking about how this becomes politically aligned in mm -hmm. america but it's a 1971 book written right. by Austrian priest who actually yep. had to step down from his priesthood responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. He's living in Latin America and right. he's talking about it from the point of view in what we might call a more progressive sense, right? Mm -hmm. To yeah. be afraid of bringing in education the way that we think of it in America to mm -hmm. Latin America will actually remove education because we will institutionalize it with this hidden curriculum right. that Americans don't even know we're being programmed by. Right. Right. Um, can yeah. I a super long quote and let you respond to that. Um, sure, go for it. Let me read some text from Illich because I think this is just kind of a, it's a summation of his argument, but it is a long quote, but it's so worthwhile. Good. Okay, so he says universal education through schooling is not feasible. Right. So mm -hmm. there you have the conflation between education and schooling, and he's untying those things. Universal education through schooling is not feasible. It would be no more feasible if it were attempted by means of alternative institutions built on the style of present schools. Neither new attitudes of teachers toward their pupils, nor the proliferation of educational hardware or software, nor the attempt to expand the pedagogue's responsibility until it engulfs his pupils' lifetimes will deliver universal education. The current search for new educational funnels must be reversed into the search for the institutional inverse, educational webs, which heighten the opportunity for each one to transform each moment of his living into one of learning, sharing, and caring. And when I read that, I also thought of you with like your ideas of community and this idea of web. So do you want right. to respond to that quote and what you see there? Yeah. So I think that's a great, that's a great place to begin to understand what he means by, uh, by de-schooling. That for Illich, uh, he again, this is 1971. This is long before we, uh, you know, so in 2022, when we when we look at an educational system that is uh, overburdened by uh, standardized testing, by a lot of trying to accentuate the educational experience through the introduction of increasing in, like increasing layers of technological hardware or uh, surveillance techniques of students, when we think that these things are going to increase the educational 
like the educational experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Illich is writing about this 50 years ago and saying, no, the, the drive toward increased standardization doesn't do what you think it does with respect to education, in part because he thinks that education is not something that happens by shoving all people through a standard curriculum and you come out at the other end having become an educated person. Mm-hmm. He says that makes you a credentialed person. Mm-hmm. It means you've passed through this institution and you get your badge on the other end having put in your time. But that doesn't really equate with being educated, mm-hmm. right? Um, you and I have both been in higher, like worked in higher education a long time, and I've had some amazing and wonderful students. But it doesn't mean that everyone who passes through my classes necessarily, you know, learns what they need to learn. It doesn't mean that they're, it doesn't mean that they're growing in their awareness of the, of the core principles of the discipline, or that they're becoming better practitioners. It doesn't mean that they're becoming more wise. It doesn't mean that they're becoming more skilled. It just means that they have completed, they have checked that box. And sometimes checking the box and acquiring skills and habits and becoming a more virtuous and wise person, sometimes those are the same things, but not always. The problem is that Illich says we've we've so aligned those two things that we we think that wisdom and being virtuous and good only happens in this sort of way. And as as a consequence, it desiccates the kind of education that can happen and does happen both formally and informally. Mm-hmm. So it it says that you're only becoming an educated educated and skilled person when you, it happens in this setting. Mm-hmm. And so it dismisses the all sorts of like formal and informal learning that take place through community networks, through alternative uh, like educational sites, mm-hmm. through uh, peer-to-peer learning, through uh, through mentoring, through all these kinds of things that can't be quantifiable in the way that a formal edge like an institutional grid is right if i check these boxes apparently i've become an educated person but that doesn't there's so much about becoming educated that can't be quantified in that kind of way so when he wants to transition us into thinking about educational webs i don't think i don't take him to say that you need to just like abolish like primary school or abolish high schools or anything like that, but that you can't think of the prime, like you can't think of those institutions as doing everything that we think that they're like, that's overburdening a system and assuming that it can do all the, all of that work Mm -hmm. rather he, and this is like where he gets into the constructive ends of the book, like that there's all sorts of ways in which we need to reconfigure how education happens. We need to establish like peer-to-peer models where people are able to kind of exchange skills with one another. We need to set up systems so that people can find mentors in particular skill sets. We need to reconceptualize education as not just gaining a body of like information, but as finding ways to practice that information and practice that material well. Like hands-on learning or experiential learning, kind of the buzzwords within higher education, like that needs to be kind of the baseline for how we think about how education happens. Yeah. Now, once you start doing that, it gets really wild and kind of almost feral <laughs> because education is going to start happening in ways that don't necessarily comport to like 
what we normally take to be standard curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's going to start like new sorts of new sorts of learning are going to start popping up in all kinds of ways, some of which happens within educations of institutions of learning, but some of which are just kind of like more native sorts of sorts of knowledge that rise up as people get their hands dirty and people begin to experiment with things and figure out things that kind of are on the frontiers of where the standard curriculums are. Yeah. And what what's so crazy to me is he was talking about narrowing it all down to just four things. Uh -huh. Like the things themselves. So like art, beauty, nature, right? right. Just goods of education, the stuff that you can touch and feel and read. Um, and then having mentors. Mm -hmm. And in our day and age where people are like, no, I want a kid who is going to be independent and think independently and pretending that mentorship, of course, doesn't happen. Right. Uh, peers to push mm -hmm. back to encourage right and then elders having this longevity having this history right he just narrows it down to the four pieces so how is it that those four pieces get lost within the institutional system in what ways do you know the current way of doing education and what ways does it prevent those four things from being really fruitful and beneficial in education mm. um i mean i think that and i so full disclosure, like I'm speaking as one who's employed within a university I, that I love, that I, I love my job. I love the work that I do. And I think that our, I think that our university actually does a really good job of kind of, in, of like implementing these different things that he's trying to, that he's talking about. Um, it still has some, I mean, any university is going to have kind of limits to the ways in which this can be implemented, but I do feel like there's, there's better and worse models of, uh, of university life that kind of can help help us here well the main reason i'm asking is because you're in an institution right and mm -hmm. i'm in the institution and it does feel like when you're in the institution what ends up happening is you fall into those the habits of their rituals you right come to their myths about what education is yeah because you have to I, like let me just give you one example grading sure grading <laughs> right so yep. you're required by the system to grade and yet one of the clearest things that he talks about, like there's this whole, I like highlighted it and uh -huh. <laughs> all this, ah! um, but essentially what he's saying is like, you can't measure the students because when you're measuring the students and having the scale, you're turning them into product. He says in the right. school world, the road to happiness is paved with a consumer's index. So yeah, that's a pretty, how do you do that? <laughs> well, I think that there's, there's ways of grading. Uh, there's ways of grading that happen where you're grading for completion, right? Mm -hmm. That would be kind of the credentialing model that he that he wants to take issue with. And I think that that's a good one to take issue with. Mm -hmm. Like simply having completed an assignment does not indicate that you did it well. It yeah. doesn't indicate that you uh, learned anything. It doesn't indicate that you grew in the process of having done this. It doesn't yeah. in indicate that you came to any kind of insights about the material. It just indicates that you finished it, right? I read the pages. My yeah. eyes passed over these particular configuration of words. Um, and so grading, I think, has to be, it has to be thought of as a pedagogical, it can't be thought of as like a, the thing that stamps the student as having passed through the course. Mm -hmm. We have to think of grading itself as a pedagogical act. Yes. So offering feedback to students on particular writing and not just feedback about uh, grammatical points, but uh, for like prompting them with further questions. Mm -hmm. Like, what did you mean by this? And can you tease this out a little bit for me? And then requiring that, 
like response to those things as part of like as part of the pedagogical experience um that requires a whole lot more time for the educator uh and there's any number of things in an educational setting that compete for our attention it doesn't matter whether you are in the primary school system where uh our our educators are drowning in paperwork or whether you are in the university system where there are any number of other uh requirements that compete for our time on a regular basis right um there's always going to be some other kind of like programmatic task that pulls us away from the time that we should rightly be giving to the pedagogical concerns and particularly the pedagogy around grading. Mm -hmm. um, so gr thinking of grading less as a mode of completion and more about, mo think about grading as like a pedagog as pedagogy, mm -hmm. uh, that this is an opportunity to enter into a dialogue with the students about the thing that they have produced and pushing them on it, pushing them to kind of expand on what they have learned, because the end here is not just completion of the course, but the growth in wisdom and practice and the growth of, you know, growth of character. So yeah. I think you just said something really key there. The problem is a loss of understanding of what the end is. Right. We don't have this mantra in front of us that keeps the ends before us that says, you know, really education is about that good. It is about the mentorship that's happening. Right. That real education takes place instead we have bought into this myth that he calls it in which we think that the grade proves we did our job right the student thinks the grade proves he or she did their job yep. right and even when i so i founded a classical school here in town like that's how i approached what mm -hmm. you're talking about is that i i just started an alternative form of school for my kids mm -hmm. Mm -hmm hardest thing to constantly talk about with the teachers as we do professional development is they all want to grade these papers, K through fifth grade, right? The grades that will never matter ever. Nope. Don't matter. <laughs> they don't matter. You need zero grades at all. The system doesn't really start harping on you until ninth grade. And then it's impossible to buck the system if you're going to play the you were forced to play the game, right? Right. Because of the once way you begin, once we begin down that road of equating grades with progress through an educational system, it gets very hard to kind of undo that. Yeah. One of the things that I tell my so I teach primarily grad students, mm -hmm. and the thing that I tell my grad students is, here's the secret: your grades don't matter. Like once you get to grad school, you you kind of figure you begin to figure out, like in a really profound sense unless you're going to go on for a PhD, in which case that's what, like what, it, when you, once you get to like that terminal place of education, that's when you figure out that the grades really don't matter. Yep. They are a means to an end, yeah. right? They are, they are a quantifiable way to establish that a student has finished a course of study. Right. Right. But they are not really an indicator at all of skill or proficiency or character or anything. Right. right? Right. Once you get to this, so this is why I always tell my students, and it really produces like, a, like you can feel like the anxiety mm. kind of draining out of them yeah. because they come to realize, yeah, what really matters is the material that we're working through and really inhabiting it and understanding it. Like right. the grade doesn't really matter. The grade will in some ways take care of itself, Yes, but it doesn't matter. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I think grades are part of the hid hidden curriculum. To me, they're one of the biggest parts of the hidden curriculum that mm -hmm. Illich is talking about. Because if you fall into this lie that grades do matter, then every single, I mean, you're ranking yourself, you become a product instead mm -hmm. of 
seeing yourself as in progress, mm-hmm. you demote the relationships. You think about all the relationships that have failed through the undergraduate years because the student wasn't thinking about the mentor and what to learn from the mentor in the classroom. Right. The student was thinking about pleasing that person for a grade, Yep. right? And so that you you lose the mentor, you lose the thing itself because you're just trying mm-hmm. to check the box to like get the great book read. Mm-hmm. You lose any sense that you need elders because they're not marking your work. So who cares what my parents think anymore? Or right. My parents right, yeah, yeah. What I'm doing, right? And then peers, it becomes all about competition. And mm-hmm. that hidden curriculum trains them even for after you graduate, right? I mean, that's what Illich is saying is like, yep. after you finish school, because you always think in terms of product, mm-hmm. ranking, competition, yep. then everything you do in the workforce, even that yep. phrase, workforce, that's what your whole life looks like. It's less... Yep. It's less relational. Um, it's less community, like you were talking about. Instead, it becomes yeah. a different way of even imagining yourself. One of the things I love about this book is the connection that he draws between the way in which we have created a- educational systems up and down, and the connection, like, and that these things ultimately for Illich are are in like it is. In, there's an intrinsic relationship there between the educational system and the workforce, mm-hmm. right? You're not, you're preparing people to go get jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that, but, but of course that just kind of assumes that the the current work models that we have, the current economic models that we're functioning with are in fact good models because you've based the entire education system on like entering into that system. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so this is where the book gets really provocative is that it's, it really calls into question kind of the ways in which our educational system prepares us, not just it, like it, the ramifications aren't just on how we educate students, but they're, it's more about like the kind of society that we have created with edu- the educational system as the symptom of that society. Mm-hmm. Right. We have created a system. We have created a society in which uh, inhabiting a certain work role in this kind of way is the end result. Like that's the most thing that that's the thing that matters the most. Mm-hmm. And so we create an education system then that prepares people to do that kind of like to live those kinds of lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it has all sorts of I mean, the <clears throat> part of the reason that he is so opposed to it and living in Latin America when he's writing this mm-hmm. is that he sees implicitly like the push toward uh the the push toward exporting an american style education system elsewhere is it creates an an, and he writes about this in the book it creates an implicit ranking which Mm -hmm. places europe and america at the top because we invented the system and it exports it everywhere else and in the process like devalues the way in which informal and formalized education happens anywhere else yes and so all of these other kind of informal webs of learning that would have been maybe more more natural elsewhere mm-hmm. become deprioritized in the process and so you lose all of that like all of that those the that like that enculturated knowledge mm-hmm. you lose all of those um like ways of thinking which are intrinsic to a particular place or culture you like you lose all that because all of that becomes deprioritized in favor of an educational system that has come from somewhere else Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um yeah it just gets it gets pretty it gets pretty radical like the the ways in which he um he thinks about it the parts that really resonated with me 
partly were the educational pieces, but partly in thinking about um, what is this kind of education doing to like this educational model that he's critiquing, like what is this doing to us as humans? Mm-hmm. Like how is this shaping the way that we think, not just about like how we gain knowledge, but how is this shaping us to think about ourselves as human beings? Yes. It's shaping us badly to think about like that the way work should happen should be in a competitive mode. It shouldn't be in like a collaborative exchange kind of mode. It should be that work should be done in a way which encourages people to accumulate credentials, but not really uh, expand kind of the realms of knowledge or wisdom. Mm -hmm. That work should be done in a way which is oriented towards sheer productivity as the prime value rather than uh, quality of life or quality of communities. Like you just see, you start to see that the way in which we're trained, like the way in which the education system functions and all of these other social pathologies that exist, like they're all part of the same problem, right? right? So for him, education matters the most because like that's the most tangible way of getting at the problem. Yeah. Like you, if you can, if you can resolve it here, then you have the basis for being able to like functionally address it in a lot of other places. Yeah. Well, that was the question I was going to ask you because ultimately you're right. You see it all over the place. Like cathedrals will never be built right now because the person who is doing the labor will not understand him or herself as part of a larger product that like goes on after you live, that is the generations, because everything that we're doing is about useful, relevant here and now, all about, all about disposable. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so, so how do we, let's, I'll, I'll make that like one of the final questions though. I also want to hear like what else we should read by Illich, but mm. how do we expose the hidden myths? How do we change people's imagination? Cause ultimately it's not a matter of didacticism. Um, there's just, right. you can't just teach the problem away, right? You have yeah. to change how people see and conceive of the problem. I think that you have to begin by, um, Kind of cultivating these alternate networks i don't think and so i'm one of my other one of the reasons that i love illich is that he reminds me so much of uh another figure that i've been reading for much longer dorothy day um and a lot of the radicality that i that i get in illich like is all over the place in day and so that just really scratches that itch for me mm-hmm. and so one of the things that day is very keen on is that you don't like her one of her mantras was building a shell building the new world in the shell of the old Mm. it's kind of like one of her key phrases and so what she means by that is that if you want to see something different you don't do it like by just abolishing the existing system you do it by creating new things that help to expose the inadequacies of the present system and in some ways like the present system will will kick and buck and it will resist its own demise but if you can if you create a compelling enough vision of something different then people begin to migrate to something that's better and they begin to find way and eventually like the existing systems will will find ways to coalesce with this better thing because they want to survive institutions don't want to die they want to kind of perpetuate themselves and so they'll begin to kind of come on board and to try to inhabit some of these things in, in like ways that bring health and vitality to the old systems as well. So, but you can't do it by, you can't, I think you have to begin by 
um, by piloting some of these things and kind of creating new networks for education. Mm -hmm. I think this is part of the reason why in the last few years you've seen a real rise in a variety of educational opportunities um, it, when it comes to like primary schooling, like what you're doing with classical school. Um, the kid, the school, like the, we do kind of a hybrid situation for homeschool. And so the, the, like the thing that my kids go to three days a week, it's pretty new. Like it's only been around for about three or four years. Um, just locally, there's been a, there's been several kind of new educational initiatives that have begun, not out of like a despising of like public education, but just wanting to like wanting to pilot some different ways of thinking about how do we teach kind of traditional subjects of grammar and history and uh, science, like how do we do these things, but maybe do them in a way which feels more integrated to the learning that happens naturally mm -hmm. uh, when kids are given opportunity to just kind of like learn and invent and explore, right? What, what does that look like? Right. Now that raises all sorts of questions then about uh, like access because um, being able to pull off something like homeschooling or classical schooling does require like a lot of time. And a lot of parents don't have that time and they don't have that freedom to do that. So it, it raises all of those questions that I think have got to be addressed by those of us that are committed to this. Mm -hmm. um, it's finding more ways to kind of draw other people into this and not conceive of it as kind of this uh, this exclusive club that, thank God I have the time and energy to like to think this way and to do this. Right. Um, so that's where I think the challenge lies for those for like these new institutions and new kind of ways of thinking about schooling, is how do we how do we provide this and make this like as accessible as possible to a greater number of people? Right. Because if I think that this is truly good for kids. Mm -hmm. then I want to say that this is good for like, I want as many kids to be a part of this as possible. How does, like, how can we kind of spread this into other, into other ways and other, like other end venues? How can we help kind of public schools to flourish and to adopt some of these like ways of thinking about education that I think are healthy and like produce like a better way of learning? Yeah. So. And I think day is a good model for that, right? Yeah. I'll and she is a great model for that. Yeah. yeah always thinking not just about her own child or children, grandchildren, but thinking about her neighbors and thinking yeah, about- Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So final question, Illich, other things we should read by Illich. Okay. So uh, the other thing that I think is absolutely essential for Illich is his book, Tools for Conviviality. Okay. So if you're thinking about Illich, he is, he is like one of these polymaths that wrote- um, he just wrote on so many different kinds of topic, like very detailed books. He wrote a, you know, he wrote a, a big tome on medicine. He wrote one on gender. He wrote one on, uh, he wrote this really interesting one that I just finished reading on water and kind of the symbolism of like water flows within societies. Um, he just wrote on so many different things, but there's a couple of texts that I think encapsulate kind of the key ethos that he's wanting to to develop mm -hmm. and then there's all sorts of like particular ways in which this caches out in society mm -hmm. and so tools for conviviality i think is probably the best place to start 
because in that he really offers his vision for like what does society what should society look like um i won't spoil any of it but uh that's kind of the place where he that's this is the one where he develops like the notion of a society as convivial that it should be free it should be a society of free exchange it should be a a society that is less characterized by kind of scripted modes of engagement and more kind of like free access mm -hmm. um so you can see where he like he begins there and then he begins to develop like he says oh well education is yeah. kind of one of the ways in which this definitely plays out mm -hmm. or uh the way in which we think about our home lives is one of the ways in which this plays out that maybe efficiency within home life is far less important than like having a fully developed like sense of what it means to belong to a place mm. or um maybe uh medicine a medical practice needs to be less conceived of as like uh a, like a bureaucratized industry and more conceived of in terms of like what it means to bring health to a person yeah so once you do once you like get your head around tools for conviviality it begins to make sense why he be begins to develop all of these other books that don't seem to be related to one another because there he kind of develops the vision that then begins to like influence and play out in lots of different ways um just as a like as a sheer like so those are those are probably like the one we've de-schooling society and then tools for conviviality uh I'm teaching a bioethics course this semester and so I read his book on medicine and it's given me just a lot of contrarian things in the back of my head that uh we'll see how they play out as the semester goes um but well, those are probably yeah those would probably be the the two the two books that I would but just have fun yeah. he's such a he's such an engaging writer and such a provocative thinker that really once you once you begin there would begin with maybe these two and get a sense of kind of what he's up to then mm -hmm. just you know go follow your nose read this read whatever you find to read he's just you know endlessly endlessly illuminating well if your church of christ school and baptist studies center ever yep. allows you to teach a catholic priest you should do an entire graduate course on illich like oh i think it'd be it'd be a delight it'd be a oh, lot of fun so yeah cool. Yeah, that'd be so cool. He has a great, there's a great book, there's a great collection of essays uh, called The Powerlessness of the Church that is a collection of his writings specifically on religion. And so, which he then applies a lot of the kinds of things that we've been talking about, about uh, how institutionalism, like institutionalism happens, but he applies it to kind of matters of religion and tradition. I was so, so going to ask, I didn't know if he'd done yep. that well, in some ways your book does that right like it talks about those things yeah yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I loved yep. thank you for taking the time i really appreciate yeah absolutely it. thanks for thanks for having me on thanks <laughs>